Let's read then Romans chapter 8, verse 31, to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. want to think tonight of the, the greatness and security of our salvation. And of course when I say our salvation, the presumption then is that it is believers who are listening to this message tonight. Frequently, you know, Paul uses the word us, doesn't he? He gave them up for us, who is interceding for us. You know, the message of the gospel is, is, is a message of good news. There's no doubt about that, isn't it? But the message of the gospel is not just a message for the unbeliever to hear and to be taught and then to respond to. It is a message for the believer to be taught, reminded of, refreshed by and continually rejoice in. Right at the start of the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul wrote to the Romans, and as he wrote, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And, of course, the gospel is a message as an evangelistic ministry, but it's also a teaching ministry. Trust we understand that, that the great truths of the gospel need to be constantly taught to God's people. As if we'd have gone through the book of Romans, as we have done in recent times, we'll have seen that you know, chapters 1 to 8 are a systematic teaching, unfolding, unpacking the great truths of the gospel. And then when we get just to the end in this passage that we've read tonight, there seems a great crescendo of praise to God. For all that God has done and, and the, the, the glorious security that all who are in Christ can have or do have and can enjoy. And that's what we're going to think about tonight. 
A couple of verses that we didn't read just above show us the great chain of salvation. And Paul brings them before us in verses 29 to 30. Speaking of those whom God foreknew. That is, those whom God predetermined, a predetermined choice by God to set his love upon them, to establish an intimate relationship with them, even before the beginning of time. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You know, the destiny for the, those who God set his love upon was that ultimately they would be conformed to the image of his son. Philippians chapter 1 tells us that we're predestined um, to, to be like Christ, to be adopted as sons into that family. That is our destination. And as we read, we're predestined for that in order that he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined then to do that, God also called. That's the inward effectual call to draw someone to Christ. He called them out of, that, out of this world. And those he has called... Well, they have responded in faith, but in this part here, we're looking at what God has done. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And so certain it is the work of God to glorify those he has called, those he has justified, that what is going to happen in the future is brought before us in the past tense because it is absolutely certain. And so that is the glorious chain of salvation, sometimes called the golden chain of salvation. And so then we come, don't we, to verse 31, which we read tonight, begins our, our thoughts on this. Because Paul says, considering that, what shall we say to these things? What can we say? concerning these things those whom God has set his love upon those whom he has worked and though in and those who will be glorified what can we say and we're going to think about four questions tonight or four statements I should say is a series of questions that Paul answers but I want to bring before us four statements we'll think about it like this that for the believer there will never be a lack of provision. Verses 31 to 32. There will never be a lack of provision. Verse 33. There will never be a successful accusation. Never be a successful accusation. Verse 34. There, there will never be a sentence of punishment. There will never be a sentence of punishment. And then verses 39, 35 to 39, there will never be a means of separation. Your salvation is absolutely secure. Let us rejoice in that tonight. So let's think about that then. If God is for us, and that's what he's outlined, Paul has outlined, particularly in verses 29 to 30, that golden chain. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, there isn't any doubt in this. It's not, well, if he is or he might not be. It's really, we could translate that since. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Well, there is opposition. 
So there is opposition for the believer. Uh, the, the, the world system is, is opposed to those who are in Christ. The devil and his demons and all who do his work unwittingly or wittingly are opposed. And even the flesh seeks to pull us away from God. But even all of those things combined are not an effective opposition. They have no power to thwart God's purposes for the believer. That the one who is all-powerful holds them in his hand. He has a secure hold upon them. You know, if my salvation, if your salvation depended upon you, then yes, you would lose it every day. But it doesn't depend upon you. It depends on God's grip on you. And there is no power that can take you out of his hand. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's amazing, isn't it? The God who knows all things about us, all know, knows all about me. All that I have done, all that I'm doing, and all that I will do. He knows it all. There's nothing ever going to come as a surprise to him. There's never a time that he'll of a day said, well, I didn't think Paul Coxall was like that. That's a surprise. I didn't realise he would be like that and he would do such a thing as that. He's not going to find out anything new about me and about you. And that's always been true. But such is his great love for us. We read in verse 32, he's shown his great love that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He didn't spare his own son. Now recently, I thought, you know, there's Abraham, isn't there? The language there, did not spare his own son, draws us back to the Abraham and Isaac story. The one who was the great son of promise. Abraham had been promised by God that he would have a son and through Isaac all the nations of this world would be blessed. He was the son of great promise. And then the word come didn't, came to Abraham. Take your son, Genesis 22. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And we know the story well, don't we? How he was taken up. The two servants were left there. There was a journey up. Father, I see the fire. I see the wood, but where is the lamb? Where is the offering? And of course, Abraham's word, God will provide that lamb. God will provide it. And on that day, just as the knife was going to come down onto Isaac... Stop. Now I know that you trust me. And in the bush, of course, was the ram. But ultimately God did provide a lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Abraham could spare his own son. But God provided a substitute that day. And God 
did not spare his son but gave him up for us all that he might be the substitute who would bear the punishment for our sin. He is the substitute. The one who was delivered up by God for our sin. And God who knew everything about you, everything about me, said he gave, we would give heaven's best, his beloved son, in whom was all his delight and joy, so that you might be saved, so that you might be conformed to the image of his son, so that you one day would be glorified. The greatest act of love and grace that this universe has ever seen is something of which you are a beneficiary if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. Now if God has done that, if God has done that great act, then how will he not give us something else, lesser as well? That's the argument here, from the greatest to the lesser. Because Paul says, well he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Will God give you... Will God give me all that I need to live a godly life and to become like his son? Or will he hold back? No, he will not. He's gave the very best already. So if we ever seem to think in our minds to doubt that, to doubt that we've been left without provision to live a godly life, to become like his son. No, God has promised that he will give us all things necessary. He will give you all things necessary in all the circumstances of life, all the trials of life. He will give you the grace that you need. He will give you the strength that you need. He will give you the power that you need. There may be the many valley experiences. But God, will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all that we need? It is inconceivable when we think of it, isn't it? That he who should give his, the greatest gift to us while we were enemies of him should not now deny us all good things necessary while we are the children of God. Friends, as we go through life, there can be times of doubting, can't there? Times when it goes through our head of doubting about things how will I cope, how will I go on but let us remember this that God has given us his son delivered him up for us all he will give you all that you need to live a godly life to be like his son through him we have all the blessings there will never be any lack of provision but then the second part you know, as we seek to live a godly life as we thought there will as we know there will be times of failure won't there there will be times of failure and maybe we're thinking well someone could bring a charge an accusation against us because unfortunately sin is inevitable and can any, any charge be made against us will there be an accusation against us and of course in verse 33 we're taken to the courtroom, aren't we? 
you know a charge in a courtroom a charge is made isn't it you are accused of this how do you plead can anyone bring a valid charge against any of God's elect those whom God has chosen before the foundation of this world those who then have responded in faith to God when he called them to himself is there anyone who shall bring a charge well, if I read my Bible correctly, Revelation 12.10 tells us the one there is one. The slanderer, the abolos, the devil. And Revelation 12.10 says that he is the accuser of the brethren, who accuse them before our God day and night. So there is one who might seek to bring a charge. And he might well do that to report on our failures. But the great thing is this. The judge is not interested. The judge is not interested in that. Why? Because an all-encompassing, unchanging verdict has already been been made by him. It's not any new information, this charge that is, might be rendered against us, if that was even possible. Because the highest court in the whole of this universe has already declared that the sinner who has faith in Jesus Christ is righteous in God's sight. Not just innocent, but righteous in God's sight. Because they are in Christ. So can any valid charge or accusation... Can any of the things that I do or you do come before God and we be declared guilty and now there's something gonna, some punishment going to happen against us? The answer is no. The answer is no. You have been declared justified. And it is God who justifies. We don't justify ourselves. Well, we might try and do that at times, but it is God who knows all things, who justifies us. And not because justice hasn't been done, of course, but all the righteous and holy demands for justice have been perfectly satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. He, in his body, bore the punishment for our sin. All of it. All of it. And so when we sin, we don't look to sin. This doesn't give us a pass to freely sin because we want to live in a way that pleases God. And we want to become like his son. We should have that desire. The believer will have that desire to be like his son. But the inevitable times when we do, and we might sin quite disappointingly to ourselves, If we're truly saved, that's all been dealt with already. No new information is coming. The judge has declared you justified, righteous, and just as has been served because Christ took the punishment for our sin. And so when we do inevitably 
we can understand we can understand this that the glorious truth of the gospel is that we are justified in Christ's sight we are now in him we are seen as righteous in fact you know Romans 5:1 tells us that doesn't it it gives justification as a settled fact Romans 5:1 therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your justification is a truth, a declaration by God concerning your legal state before him when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's done, it's dusted, it's sealed, can never be reversed. It will never be taken to another court. And if there's some new evidence has come to light that is seeking to uh, remove this verdict, it needs to be reconsidered at all. No. You are justified a settled fact. That's the great truth of the gospel. And it gives us peace. We are at peace with God and it can give us peace. It should give you peace. Give you great peace of mind. You know, people search for peace of mind, don't they? But this is great peace because of what God has done for you in Christ and it is a gift that you receive through faith. And so there is no charge that can be brought against God's elect. It is God who justifies. So will there be any punishment for us then? Well, as I said, verse 34 brings us there will never be a sentence of punishment. There won't be any condemnation. Who is to condemn? Who could bring a sentence of punishment, a a wrongdoing? Who could pass a sentence upon us? If God has justified us, well, who could do that? Bring judgment upon you. Now, there's going to be a time when judgment on this world will come. And that judgment will be executed by the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 5.22, for, for example, we, we could read there that, that you know, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And so the role of judging has been given to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when Paul preached in Athens? And as he preached there in Acts chapter 17, we have it recorded. Part of the message was this, about God, that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so the judgment of this world and the passing of sentence on this world will be through Jesus Christ. And that is the role that he has been given. Judgment to him. And there will be condemnation. But the great purpose of his first coming was to secure salvation for all who had come to him. You know, John 3.17 For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
And so those who are the recipients of God's salvation, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Saviour, confessed Him as their Lord, have an eternal, unchanging salvation. And in fact, the start of our chapter tonight, a chapter which start, ends with no separation, is a chapter that starts with no condemnation. Verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ Jesus, a glorious truth of the gospel is this. That there is no condemnation for you. There will be no sentence of judgment against you ever. Because the one who will be doing this is Christ Jesus. Verse 34. And he's the one who died for you. So it's illogical to think that the one who died for you is now going to be the one who would condemn you. No. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised. He died for us. He was raised, Romans 4.25 says, for our justification. You know, his raising from the dead was you know, the, the, the verdict of God, the verdict of heaven. That he was satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And our justification comes through that. Not only that is he raised, but he is at the right hand of God. He's at a place of authority, the highest position. And so the one who died for us, the one who was raised for us, is at the highest position. And he's not going to condemn you, because look, at the end of verse 34, who indeed is presently, I've put in the word presently by the way, interceding for us. Interceding for us. You know, the us always here is believers. You know, sometimes we tell one another that we'll pray for them. And well, we do, but sometimes, let's be honest, I hope I'm not the only one in the room, we forget, don't we? We forget. But there is one who continually intercedes for his people. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Murray McShane, but I could be wrong. And I probably am, to be honest. But I remember a quote I read once, you know, said, if you could hear in the next room Jesus Christ praying for you, what confidence would that give you as you go out into this world? Well, of course, yeah. Well, he's not in the next room, but he is praying for us. And friends, if we understood that, if we trusted in that, if we believed that a bit more, if I believe that a bit more, what boldness and courage and confidence that that would give me as I seek to live a life for God, as you seek to live a life for God. There will be no condemnation, quite the reverse. He is presently interceding for you. You know, sometimes we think, and quite rightly, don't we, you think about the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross, and it was a finished work. He could say those words, it is finished. 
the work that he had came to do to offer himself to bear the punishment for our sin on the cross it truly is finished but there is a present and continual work we have a high priest in heaven whoever lives and intercedes for us and when we sin he pleads his own blood he pleads his death because that has covered it all and he's not pleading of course to a reluctant God let's not sort of try and think that that you know the Lord Jesus is in heaven at God's right hand he's a high priest and he's pleading you know for these people us his people to a reluctant God who doesn't want to forgive that's not the picture so the God who is in full accord and all are in the Trinity that God is pleased to forgive his people on the basis of what Christ has done you know John writes 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 he says my little children John's an elderly man now my little children I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin okay so we may not sin but he's realistic he knows we will and he goes on but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous you notice it's an advocate with the father so he's speaking to those who are the children of God who have a heavenly father that term is can only be applied to believers we have an advocate with the father you you as a believer have an advocate with the father there can be no condemnation because the one who will judge is the one who is actually interceding for us it is absurd it is illogical to think there will be any condemnation for you what great truths there's no lack of provision there's no valid accusation and there is no condemnation but finally in verses 35 to 39 we see this there will never be any means of separation never the question might come are there any circumstances are there any events are there any actions whatsoever that a believer will face that can sever God's love from us anything that we might come into into this world any of the Lord, anything that the Lord's people might face that means they will be separated from that love and Paul details seven things we're not going to go through them in any detail tribulation you know real hardships distress to be in a tight corner persecution famine nakedness danger or peril or the sword itself which really ultimately speaks of death seven terrors perhaps that to be faced can they separate us from the love of God well they cannot you know and I was thinking of the word peril there or danger I think that great hymn amazing grace John Newton wrote didn't he through many dangers toils and snares I have already come it is grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home 
He was speaking from experience. And as Paul, as Paul writes to the Romans, and as we read what Paul has written, what he is bringing before us, we know he is speaking from experience. Remember how he could write to the Corinthians? How he could speak about his service for Christ? He says, I'm, so, I'm talking like a madman. Far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Denchiles, danger in the city. Hunger, thirst, sleepless nights. Paul had experienced all of that. But nothing he could testify could separate God's love from him. He might have lost many things, and he did, materially and physically. But nothing could separate him from the love of God. Instead, perhaps we could say this. They are indeed these things, some of them part of the all things that God brings to bring us into conformity to his Son. Part of the experiences that God's people go through to some degree or another. And that God uses these. As much as we might think here, standing, sitting on a Sunday night, I don't want to face these this week. But the realisation is that they're, they're used of God to, to bring you and me into what is his ultimate purpose for you and me. To become like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds the people, reminds us, he quotes from Psalm 44, that suffering has always been a lot of the godly. The suffering the people was, had then was not peculiar. The suffering that people have now is not peculiar. It has always been the case. It is true that perhaps those Old Testament believers couldn't quite understand it. Not like we can. Because we live the other side of the cross. We live in a fuller revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And what it means to be somewhat conformed to him. And we can trace, Paul could trace sufferings back to our identification with Christ. So emphatically, the answer is no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. These trials do not cut us off from Christ's love. In fact, in fact, they give us perhaps, don't know why I put the word perhaps in, they give us a more intimate and thrilling experience of his love when being deprived of certain things that we become accustomed to. The love of Christ becomes more real. You know, that's what he's writing, isn't it? We are more than conquerors. That word is only used here in the New Testament, this, this word in the original. Super conquerors. 
through him who loved us. You'll notice the tense there. It's not that he's stopped loving us. He still loves us. Of course he still loves us. But loves us, draw, loved us, draws us back to the cross, doesn't it? The supreme example of his love for us was when he died upon the cross for our sins. But no matter what life brings us, the one who loved us, the one who loves us, will bring us into conformity to him. And these things... As these things, as much as, let's be honest, I, you know, if someone says, would you like famine or nakedness tomorrow? I'm not going to put my hand up and say, yeah, I wouldn't mind, that'll be good. But they can come and make us conquerors. Let me illustrate. Not so long ago, I think it was this year, but the year's gone so quickly, you tend to think it might have been last year. I read a book, Tortured for His Faith. It was about a man, Harolyn Popov. I might have told you before, he was uh, rounded up in, in, with other evangelical leaders in, in Bulgaria in the 1950s. So not so long ago, and in a country not so far away from here, in Sofia, a country I visited. And uh, there was building shown to me and in this place, and he was taken to this building. And he was tortured in there by the communists to to say that you know he was a spy of the western powers uh, evangelical Christians had been put in there and they were working for the foreign powers to be spies against the communists and they tried to break him they tried to break him in so if you read the book it's horrific and one of the tortures was they stood him against a wall. Stood against a wall, he stood about uh, a foot away. And you had to stare at the wall face up. You were not allowed to close your eyes. And you read through. And he stands there for 14 days. 14 days. I tried it for about 14 seconds. And I got bored. And... In the book it describes, you know, they, the guards were rotated round. And uh, if he moved at all, he was beaten up against the wall again, looking, no sleep. And at the end of that, he looked, as I could probably look now, and he looked at a window. And he saw this grotesque object in the window with these hugely fattened legs, like elephant's legs and a face that just didn't look real and he looked and he realised it was him how all the blood had just drained down to there that didn't break him so the inspector comes in takes him to a room puts a pistol behind his neck and says Popov we've had enough of your stubbornness this is your last night. You must die because of your stubbornness in refusing to confess your espionage. I am giving you your last and final chance. While I count to five, you may think it over and confess that you are a spy. If you are sensible, you may live. But if you are not, I will shoot you at the count of five. Popov says, 
I was sure he was going to shoot me. For thousands of others had been shot in that building, the White House, as it was called. I knew these people carried out their threats. But listen to this. The thought of death as a bridge to eternity flashed across my mind. I would see Jesus. I was filled with certainty that this hellish torment would soon be over. As it, it was if eternity had already begun for me and only the formality of death remained. Mentally, I was prepared and was already with Christ. I waited only for the shot to go. I would be taken up on angels' wings to heaven to Jesus my Saviour. There was such a longing in my heart in that magnificent moment with a pistol at his neck to see Jesus. How appealing this was for me, all this torture ended, to see him, to be with Christ. He writes, many people don't like to think about death. They fear and tremble at the word death and see death as a forbidding black figure. Why do people fear death? And he speaks about that. But then he says this, but for a person who believes in Jesus and is sure of his faith and salvation through the cleansing blood of Christ, there is no death. Up to now, I had never imagined what death would be like. But for me, death was not a dark spectre, but an angel to come to liberate me. Death to me does not appear dark and grim. It's full of light and gladness. Popov, in that time, was more than a conqueror, you see. He was more than a conqueror. The darkness of that situation which appears dark to so many, was not dark to him. Why? Because faith in Christ and knowing Christ made all the difference and the grace of God came to him for him to understand that and the glorious truth of the gospel that he would be with Christ. And death was going through, just going through a passage to that. It's an illustration of what it means that in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul could say that he was absolutely certain, I am sure, that neither death nor life, there's pairs of things here, death or life. You know, death, as Popov says, takes us to be with Christ. All that we face in life will not separate us from Christ. Angels or rulers, present things or future things, things above, things below. In fact, he sums it up, anything else in all creation. There is nothing that will able, be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing with the ability to separate us from that. We can truly know the love of God because of Christ. The cross shows us what divine love is. And our salvation is a glorious salvation. It is a secure salvation. You know, nothing in life is secure as your salvation. We are loved eternally to the uttermost. And being in Christ, and we feel strange saying this, 
means we are secure as he is. If you're in Christ, you are secure as he is. And of course he is secure. Let us be refreshed daily. Let us seek to refresh ourselves daily in the awareness of God's overwhelming, incomparable love to us in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we just bow before you. We thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. And we pray that the the truth of the gospel might be continual refreshment to us. Not because it's uh, fairy stories that we've made up. It's some inspirational poster that someone's designed. But it's true. And it's true for every believer. And all that you have done for them through Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to rejoice in these things. We ask it in his name. Amen.